Hello and welcome to this podcast edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. Our focus today is investing in China, specifically its robust small company universe, an asset class mostly overlooked by U.S. investors. Our guest is Tiffany Xiao. She is lead portfolio manager of Matthews China Small Companies Fund, which she has led since 2015. Rated four-star by Morningstar, Matthews China Small Companies Fund has delivered benchmark and peer-beating annualized returns of 6% over the last five years and 10% over the last three, placing it in the top 20% of all China region funds. However, it has not escaped the pressure of China's 2018 bear markets. The fund has declined in recent months. Tiffany, welcome to WealthTrack. I'm excited to be here. Tiffany, I'm going to start with a big picture question. Why China now, when the world's second largest economy is slowing down, its offshore and onshore markets are in bear markets, its leadership under President Xi is consolidating power, and its trade relationship with the U.S., a key trading partner, is under stress? Great question. So, The way we look at China is that we try to identify areas of structural growth. So even though China, based off of a very large base, is going to slow each and every year by just a little bit, uh, there are still many areas within China where we can find long-term structural growth, where we could comfortably generate alpha for our investors. That's a good reason. All of the the negatives um, or certainly uh, challenges that I mentioned in the question, we can invest in China whenever we want to. And it's, it's the question is why now in particular would this be a good time to enter uh, the Chinese market? So beside the fact that China is a lot cheaper now, the key there is that what hasn't changed is China's structural growth towards a more consumption and services-led economy. So you have to remember that the China we're investing in today is very different than the China that uh, a lot of Americans may have an impression of 20, 30 years ago. The Chinese economy today is 80% driven by consumer and services and the treasury parts of its economy. And those structural forces are very much at play, even though the overall numbers, as you can see from the GDP numbers or industrial production or even retail sales numbers, will seem to have come off uh, year by year. But that's really just a lot of large numbers. It's a large base. For an economy of its size, we expect that a slower and more sustainable growth rate is actually a positive thing for China. In terms of catalyst for the economy, though, the government is very much focused on the areas that will continue to drive China's structural growth. So with government support in areas such as semiconductors or biotech or software industries, we see a lot of opportunities to invest in China that are relatively immune from some of the macro risks that you've highlighted. All right. That's really interesting. So you're the lead portfolio manager of the Matthews China Small Companies Fund, which is ranked in the top fifth of China region funds by Morningstar for the last three and five years. And uh, your, your performance, you've outperformed your MSCI China Small Cap Index, um, and which is why Morningstar uh, has ranked you so high. But 
I've asked you the question about why we should be interested in China right now. But as a general rule, why should we be interested in China small cap stocks specifically as an asset class? Chinese small caps are a really interesting asset class because if you think about how China transitioned from just a world's factory to now a world's leading place for innovation, that transition means that it's really the smaller, more entrepreneurial companies that have driven this transition so that China is now at a much more sustainable or innovative path. So that's why small caps as an asset class is very interesting. Um, if you look at China, over 60% of GDP and over 80% of urban employment are actually generated by the small to medium enterprises. Yet, if you look at how most people invest in China, even the MSCI China has only 2% allocated to small caps. So we think that that is a unreasonably large gap between reality and how investors invest in China. Right. And let me ask you about what you said about China having transitioned from the world's factory to the world center for entrepreneurship and, and innovation. How real is that? Um, and when you're just can you quantify or give us some sense of how large the entrepreneurial and innovative aspects of uh Chinese companies are? The smaller companies in China actually generate more than 70% of all the intellectual property patents that are filed from Chinese firms. Not only that, but the quality of the innovation has improved quite dramatically over the past decade. We now have world leading oncology drugs now being developed in China and now being recognized by foreign players via joint ventures. Uh, with foreign players taking Chinese drugs abroad to be sold and registered in the United States and, and Europe, similarly in the areas of semiconductors. So the innovation, quality of the innovation has really improved dramatically. And that really has to be attributed to three factors that we see coming together in very short pace. Uh, the, the three factors are government support, and the critical mass of talent, and finally, the availability of long-term capital. So these three things previously were not a very sustainable force in China. But in the past 10 years, that's really changed with government support, not just from the incentives and subsidies, but also in immigration policy and trying to gather global talent. On the talent side, you have a lot of Chinese nationals that, you know, a couple of decades ago had no opportunity to work on the world's most leading, most innovative projects. So they had to stay abroad after they were foreign educated. And now they do see the opportunity in China with government support and with long-term capital. So they're returning to China in masses to really come up with indigenous innovation to solve indigenous problems. And finally, you have long-term capital now are willing to be committed to the more innovative parts of China that may not see immediate rewards, but you know, for in areas, for example, like semiconductors and biotech, in areas that may take more than 10 years for a company to really cultivate and have a sustainable 
product pipeline. You now have long-term capital, such as you know venture capital companies and even Chinese entrepreneurs that are willing to reinvest into their countries. So with these three factors together, we're seeing actually a very sustainable stream of innovative companies coming out of China. Is the government providing most of the long-term capital? And when you're talking about government support, um, what kind of support are you talking about for these small cap companies? Sure. Let's talk about this question in two different aspects. The first aspect of it is the government support, and the second aspect of it is long-term investment into the companies themselves, mostly via private capital. So on the government support side, the Chinese government has definitely taken a very long-term view in supporting these key strategic industries by providing, for example, a lot of good policy in terms of uh, tax refunds, lower tax rates, and the recruiting of foreign talent. But also, they have laid very strong foundations in terms of making sure that the basic infrastructure is very sound, that the education system is also very robust so that they can continuously have a very high volume of uh, highly educated talent to enter the workforce to work on these very challenging industries. On the company side, the companies themselves, so very rarely do they take on government capital as Mm -hmm. part of their long-term capital. Most of the times, these companies are founded by the founders and also the private equity and the venture capital funds that have really supported them along the way. And how many publicly traded small cap companies are we talking about? How big is your universe? Right. The way we define small cap is we are talking about companies with under three billion U.S. dollar market cap. And in China, there are actually over 4,500 companies that are a small cap. That is actually 80 percent of the Chinese equity universe. And when we're talking about Chinese small caps, we're talking about companies that are listed anywhere in the world as long as they are most of their businesses are done in China. So about half of our universe, over 2,000 companies, are companies that are listed in China in what we call the A-share market. And then the other half of that 4,500 is listed outside of China. So there's still Chinese companies, that, but they have just chosen to list in either Hong Kong or the U.S. or anywhere else in the world. And um, how liquid are these companies? Of these 4,500 plus companies, the average daily liquidity per stock is actually 13 million US dollars. It's a very liquid small cap asset class. It's in fact the world's second most liquid small cap asset class just behind the United States. And you know, the liquidity profile of these stocks have actually improved over time with the more and more participation in the A-share market by both the local retails investors and also by foreign investors. And the as far as the volatility is concerned, uh, U.S. small caps, for instance, are more volatile than large cap stocks are historically. So is, is there similar volatility among the Chinese small cap companies? So China is a very interesting market because if you think about 
the Chinese stock market, again, you have to differentiate between A shares and non-A shares, meaning, again, companies are listed outside of China. In the A share market, small caps over the past 10 years are on average 21% more volatile than the larger companies listed in A shares. But if you look at the Chinese companies who are listed outside of China, that's actually the inverse. So small caps listed outside of China are actually less volatile than their large cap peers. In the past 10 years, on average, small caps listed outside of China are 16% less volatile than their large cap peers. Can you explain that? (laughs) Why? Yes. It is quite an anomaly. And again, it has to do with the market structure because what we noticed is that you know, everywhere in the world, there's a home country bias because locals usually know that smaller companies are the more innovative ones and the ones with better growth prospects. So usually small caps are more expensive than large caps. And in A shares, where locals, meaning Chinese nationals, can buy their own stocks, then it's priced that way. So small caps in A shares are more expensive and they trade a little bit more volatilely. But offshore China... The dynamic there is that uh, you're expecting foreigners to love Chinese stocks and to love their small cap stocks, which rarely happens. As a result, the technical aspect there is that a small caps uh, traded outside of China, they do not get the sentimental passive flows from ETF buying and selling from foreign investors. much less compared to the large cap here. So that reduces quite a bit of the volatility. But the other more interesting, I think more fundamental point is that uh, smaller companies in China, they're actually great allocators of capital. And as a result, they're very cash flow generative companies that participate in the more structurally growing parts of the economy. And fundamentally, they're just much less impacted by the overall changes in the macro environment of China. And they're more, I would say, in charge of their own destiny. And as a result, um, in terms of their business metrics, they're also less volatile. So interesting. Now, in the Matthews China Small Companies Fund, uh, which I mentioned, you know, you're uh, excellent performance versus your index and also against your peers. What kind of companies do you look for? I know you basically focus it on, you've got a big universe to choose from, but you tend to invest in 40 to 60 companies at a time. Is that right? Yes, we try to aim for the top 1% of our universe. And the philosophy is actually quite simple. So if you think about small caps, that just means that you have Uh, you know, a lot smaller in terms of your equity base compared to the larger cap peers. So if you're smaller, you better be really smart about how you go about doing business. So you have to pick and choose your battles. And it would be really silly for a small cap company to go into industries where a big balance sheet is a key requirement. For example, in areas like real estate or telecom or heavy asset industries, those are not a good fit for smaller companies and their allocation of capital. So instead, what we try to focus on is on companies that can really generate the highest return on invested capital based on 
their moat. And usually that is secured by a very favorable um, competitive position through intellectual property, or also sometimes it could be as a result of a structural change in the supply and demand in the markets. So as a result, we tend to weight heavier towards information technology, obviously, and also um, parts of the industrial complex that are key enablers to whether it's automation or the next generation of new energy vehicles, and also in the areas of healthcare. So let me ask you about, you know, specifically uh, the your areas of interest. So software is one uh, area, right, that you've, you've focused on, and I guess that's where intellectual property would definitely could come into play. So give us an example of a company in the software sphere that you're invested in. Let me first uh, give you a sense of what's going on more broadly in the software space in China, mm-hmm. and then we can discuss um, a company that think we think has very good long-term potential. So if you think about software, um, it's really interesting, and it's very intuitive for us in Western economies that we use software to enhance our daily productivity and to really document and retain intellectual property, because you know, there's always going to be employee turnover no matter which country you're in. That's very intuitive to us. But in China, that's actually a relatively new phenomenon. Remember, I said that China just 30 years ago, most of its GDP were driven by manufacturing, where your core assets of a business, if you're a manufacturer, are your machinery and your factories. They're not necessarily your people because the operators, you know, sadly are quite you know, um, interchangeable. Right. But now China has transitioned itself towards a services economy where it's really important to businesses that they understand how to properly manage their assets, which in this case is now their people. So in order for the workers to work more productively, software is a really critical piece. And on top of which, you know, if you don't properly document all the intellectual property or the customer relationships or all the due diligence that an employee has gone through while they're with you, once that employee leaves, you actually lose a piece of your company. And that obviously is very detrimental to operating a services economy business. So Chinese businesses are now very quickly migrating to software, the utilization of software in their businesses. And they've actually leapfrogged a lot of the traditional ways of deploying software, which we have here. Um, you know, in the West, people started with the oracles and SAPs. In China, the s- businesses are migrating directly to the cloud and really leapfrogging a, little, a lot of the traditional systems that we have here in the West. So in that context, uh, we're actually quite excited about a company called uh, King D Software. So King D Software is one of the uh, older names in the Chinese software space. They've actually been in business for over 10 years, but they've really transitioned their business from just selling simple financial and accounting software to now a cloud-based solution that offers ERP and CRM, a very integrated uh, human resources and employee productivity software. And where's it traded? Kingdi is traded in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And the key parts of their business, which is the Kingdi cloud businesses, that is actually growing 60% year on year 
still, even up to the third quarter of this year. So remember, we spoke earlier about how China is slowing down, but there are definitely very strong pockets of growth. And Tiffany, can you spell King D for us who are challenged? Sure. No problem. So it's K-I-N-G-D-E-E. All right. That's pretty easy for even me to understand. Um, and again, that's is that you know one of the things that we talked about as well is that a lot of these companies are run by founding families. Uh, is King D one of them? So, yeah, so Kindy has been around for a lot longer, so its shareholding base is relatively more diversified. But if you talk about a lot of the newer companies that um, have been in market, then you see a higher concentration of the founding team owning usually between 60 to 70 percent of the company still. Is that a positive attribute or is that a potentially negative one? So when I look at companies, the shareholding structure is a very important part of our due diligence. I think the ratio itself is relatively unimportant compared to the quality of the people behind the businesses, right? Who are the actual owners? What is their vision? What is their integrity? That's what we really focus on. In terms of smaller companies, it's more often than not still owned by the founding members, but that doesn't mean we automatically apply a positive view towards analyzing these companies. Uh, we really need to see how these founders have really you know, led the businesses, treated their employees, treated minority shareholders over time in order to make that assessment. But the general logic, um, which is quite interesting in small caps in China, is that because these founders they actually do not want to reduce stakes in their businesses. So they usually don't sell their stakes at IPO or even later on. Uh, The only way they kind of recoup their capital is actually through dividends. At a minimum, these companies pay 30% uh, dividend payout. And they are, again, companies that are in structurally growing areas with, with very strong cash flows. So the average free cash flow yield is 10%, which means that when you're investing in a Chinese small company, you should expect at least 3% dividend yield, which is, I would argue, is a quite, quite a high yield for um, you know a, a group of growth companies. It is, no question about it. A couple of other areas that you've mentioned Uh, One of them was semiconductors. So tell us, give us an example of a semiconductor manufacturer or uh, whatever it is that you look for in the semiconductor area that you think is uh, attractive growth prospects. Semiconductors are what I called the new oil in China. And the reason why I say this is because if you look at the Chinese economy today, a lot of it is powered by the new economy. For the most basic example, uh, most Chinese people actually don't carry around cash anymore. Most people pay via their mobile wallets. And in order for your mobile wallet to complete a transaction, a lot of these are done in the cloud based off softwares that run on top of semiconductors. And that's why, you know, similarly to how oil 
powers the industrial complex. Semiconductors really power the new economies in China. And that's why semiconductors are really important in China today and also in China's future. The largest import in the Chinese economy is actually semiconductors. Mm -hmm. So China imports more than 260 billion US dollars of semiconductors a year. That's actually double the amount that they import in oil. So obviously, given the importance of semiconductors as a part of the Chinese new economy and how China still imports 80% of its semiconductor needs, China is striving for at least some level of self-sufficiency. And this is a very large industry that, again, with companies that can only be successful if they continuously are able to come up with world-class product and really have that very strong intellectual property um, portfolio. So that makes it a really attractive industry for us to begin our hunts and to find companies that can generate sustainably very strong return on invested capital based on their intellectual property position. And an example in your fund? My largest position in the fund is actually a semiconductor company. The company is called Syllergy. So Syllergy is China's largest analog semiconductor company. And it's actually a very interesting space for us because if you think about how the world is increasingly digital, uh, you may think that analog semiconductors may have lost their place. But that's actually not true. Analog semiconductors is actually one of the fastest growing parts of the entire semiconductor landscape. That is because everything that needs power Everything that is a sound wave, anything that you could see with your eyes, uh, these are all analog. The real world is analog. And as we try to integrate the real world into the computing world, uh, you need analog semiconductors to serve as that link to translate the real world into the digital world so that the computers can understand us better. So that is why analog semiconductors itself is a very, very interesting space. And on top of which, they actually have a much longer product life cycle than digital semiconductors. A typical digital semiconductor will only be popular for you know, 18 to 24 months. Whereas an analog semiconductor, you can actually sell it as is for up to 15 years. So these are products that really allow their creators to retain and recoup the value that they've invested into the research and development process over time. So it's a very lucrative business if you can become a world leader. And we definitely think that Syllergy has very strong potentials to be a world leader in the area of analog semiconductors. It's so interesting that it's, uh, it is a Chinese company and yet it's traded in Taiwan, which I know is considered to be part of greater China. But nonetheless, uh, why, why is that? Is, is that uh, could that be a risk in the future? I mean, could it be delisted from Taiwan? I know that some Chinese companies have been delisted, for instance, from the U.S. Uh, stock markets and uh, and then relisted in China. There's a, a movement to try to get companies, Chinese companies, that are traded overseas to come in and list in, on the uh, Chinese exchanges. So what? any risk to Syllergy in that respect? 
We don't think so. So the Chinese companies that have a longer history, in this case, Syllergy has been around for close to 10 years. They got their early rounds of funding from the Taiwanese venture capital companies. And that's why they decided to list in Taiwan. Uh, but if you look at the more recent wave of companies that are backed by Chinese money and Chinese venture capital, then you're more likely to see the companies be listed either onshore in China or in Hong Kong or the U.S. market. But right. no matter where these companies are listed, um, they are headquartered and most of their businesses are conducted within China. So from that standpoint, we don't see much risk. Let me ask you about another area that I know uh, that you are focusing on, and that is biotech. And you mentioned uh, that there is leadership in the in oncology, in cancer fighting uh, among Chinese companies. So tell us about biotech, why that's such a promising area for Chinese small caps, and also give us an example of a company you're investing in that sector. Sure. Biotech is really fascinating to me because of a lot of the advances that the world has experienced really in the past five years. So in the area of biotech globally, what's been really exciting is the emergence of a field called immuno-oncology, which is basically using your own immune system to fight cancer. And we've seen breakthroughs in, uh, in areas, for example, a PD-1 and anti-PD-1 class drugs. And the amazing thing about immuno-oncology is that you're using the human's DNA to combat a mutation in DNA, which is cancer. And, you know, as much as humans are all alike, uh, drugs are developed here in the West to tackle the more prevalent cancer types in the West may not work for the Chinese population because there is still a difference in how the DNA mutates in China versus here in the West. So that's why you do need scientists in China to really focus on developing biotech drugs and immuno-oncology drugs that will work on the Chinese population. To give you a statistic, um, in the States, um, the Caucasian population, the more prevalent cancer types are usually cancers of the blood, uh, cancers of the reproductive organs, in addition to you know, lung. In China, the more prevalent cancer types besides lung cancer, which, you know, due to horrible air pollution issues, are actually cancers of the liver and stomach. So these are actually cancer types that are very rare in Caucasian populations. So as a Chinese cancer patient, you really have a very limited amount of choices in terms of getting very uh, effective cancer treatments. So you really need the Chinese scientists that have been educated abroad, that have decades of education and work experience abroad to return to China and create, again, uh, very innovative drugs that will work for a more indigenous problem. So that is what we're seeing right now. And that's why we're very excited about the biotech space, particularly when it comes to uh, immuno-oncology cancer treatments in China. 
Is there an example that you can give us of a company involved in that that you are invested in? So Innovent Biologics is a Chinese biotech company that we see a lot of potential in. So this is a company that has a pipeline of 17 biosimilars, which means that, you know, these are drugs that are basically generic versions of what uh, some of the companies in the West have developed, but they are making it much more affordable for the Chinese population of cancer patients. And also they are making changes to make sure that they work better on the Chinese DNA. So uh, it's actually really interesting that um, the drugs that they are developing and modifying have caught the attention of global peers. So Innovent is actually 20% owned by um, Eli Lilly. And Eli Lilly is taking Innovent's drugs that are developed and to be made in China um, to be registered in the United States and in Europe so that it could also have a global market over the long run. And where is Innovent traded? So Innovent is also traded in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And it's a recent listing also. The interesting thing about the biotech space in China is that it is a relatively new market. And there are fewer investors that really have the expertise to analyze this industry. Um, and on top of that, the interest and the interesting part is that because most biotech companies are not yet profitable because it is a relatively new industry so that they actually cannot be listed in the Chinese A share market. So um, I think that creates quite an interesting dynamic between onshore listed Chinese companies and offshore Chinese companies, where you'll see more and more of these uh, very world-class um, innovative companies that are not yet profitable be listed actually in Hong Kong rather than in the A-share market. Tiffany, from a previous conversation, uh, you mentioned to me that uh, in order to be listed on the A shares uh, in in China, trading in China, that you actually have to have profits, which is not the case in the U.S., where a third of the Russell 2000 uh, companies uh, are not profitable. That's actually true. So in A shares, there's a requirement that you be profitable actually for two years before coming to the IPO market. That's fascinating. What kind of portfolio diversification do China small caps offer uh, in a in a well diversified portfolio? I'd say versus U.S. small caps or U.S. large caps, and also versus Chinese large caps. So Chinese small caps, as I mentioned, they really deserve a much larger place in investor portfolios because of their critical role in driving China's structural transformation towards the services economy. And yet they're very underrepresented. So in terms of the diversification benefits, it's actually very clear. So the correlation between Chinese small caps and U.S. small caps is actually only 24 percent over the past five years. And because of the low volatility nature, particularly of the Chinese small cap companies are listed outside of China, 
you're actually able to diversify your portfolio without adding much risk because the volatility levels between Chinese small caps and U.S. small caps is actually very similar. And also, if you look at the large cap indices in China, what you end up uh, investing in, if you invest in one of these indexes, is that you have a very heavy weighting towards internet companies, usually over 40%, and another 20% in large state-owned uh, financial companies in China. Whereas if you're invested in a concentrated portfolio of just the top 1% of the Chinese small cap universe, what you will get is uh, instead a very balanced mix between um, information technology companies, in this case, mostly semiconductors and software, and also, uh, you know, the world's next wave of innovators in the healthcare industry and also in areas of industrial, which really are key enablers to productivity in areas like, you know, automation and logistics and even uh, new energy vehicle components. So the exposures are very different. Um, and in terms of the correlations, um, the numbers are uh, quite favorable in terms of, you know, creating a more balanced global portfolio. What's happened this year? Uh, the, I mentioned that the Matthews China Small Companies Fund has done extremely well versus its peers and benchmark. Um, but it's been a terrible year for Chinese companies in the last year. And Matthews Asia Small Companies Fund is down uh, double digits. What went wrong? Yes, this has been quite a difficult year, um, really only starting in the third quarter of this year. So if you look at the Chinese small cap uh, space and particularly our um, strategy, uh, we've actually held up really well in the first half of the year because smaller companies are generally less impacted in a global trade war because these are companies that are very focused on the domestic consumer and the domestic economy. And you know, up till summer of this year, the Chinese domestic economy was actually doing quite well despite a lot of the, uh, I would say, trade tensions. But starting in the third quarter of the year, you did see some uh, signs of weakness in the Chinese economy. But these are actually, I would argue, mostly driven by policy rather than a structural problem with the Chinese economy. So the policies that have driven the domestic economy weaker are a twofold. One is on the monetary side, the Chinese government has been very conscious about the debt-to-GDP levels since the global financial crisis. So they have been very active in de-risking the system, going after the most risky parts of the Chinese debt structure. So this year, they've basically eliminated most of the growth in the shadow banking system. So as a statistic, you know, just five years ago, about half of the Chinese loans came from the traditional Chinese banking system, and the other half came from what we call the shadow banks. But this year, the shadow banking contribution has actually gone down to only 20%. So you see a very strong contraction in areas such as loans for automotives to buy, you know, by cars and also loans for mortgages because the government is trying to also tackle the high housing prices in China. So that's really 
uh, hurt liquidity in the Chinese economy um, this year. On the other side uh, of policy risk, we did see a lot more, I would call, um, interference in the traditional more services uh, and consumer-led parts of the economy by the Chinese government. So we saw regulation that would try to um, limit how many hours a week um, kids can go to after-school tutoring, how many hours they can play games, what type of games. So uh, these are actually a negative to a strategy um, such as ours that's really focused on the domestic consumer and that growth of the middle-income class because these are sectors that have traditionally been immune from policy risk because, you know, China has actually opened up quite a bit in terms of allowing people uh, personal freedom. So mm -hmm. policies such as this that seem to kind of um, backpedal a little bit on the personal freedom front uh, really has created um, unease in the investment community and really caused a I would say a revaluation downwards of these stocks. So you went from a lot of these consumer-oriented companies trading at a premium to now a discount to their long-term value. But we actually think that a lot of these policies introduced by the government, um, quite a few of them are actually unenforceable. So they actually have very little impact on the fundamentals of these companies, whether it's in the education sector or in the gaming sector. So we actually have taken this as an opportunity to really invest uh, more heavily in companies that we think will benefit over the long run, despite these new policies being announced. And two final questions. Biggest risks, you mentioned government interference uh, that was unexpected in some sectors of the economy. What are the biggest risks to the Chinese small cap universe? Right. So for Chinese small caps, uh, the traditional worries are actually less of a worry for small caps. So the more um, common worries about China, whether it's it's debt level or that, you know, overall it's slowing a little bit year on year. Uh, these are relatively minor risks for small caps because, again, they don't really depend um, on the Chinese banking system because as they were growing their businesses in the past few decades, they actually had no access to the banking system. Most of the state-owned banks would not lend to small businesses. So they... Um, kind of grew up with self-help with their own cash flow. So even with the contraction in the shadow banks, uh, they're actually relatively immune to these changes and the uh, macro side. Um, and, and so in terms of overall growth rates decelerating, again, we, we just really focus on sectors that have very sustainable structural growth. So, um, and try to shy away from companies that really depend on debt financing or easy money. And that's how we can really think about uh, managing risk at the portfolio level. Tiffany, at the end of every WealthTrack interview, we ask our guests if there's one investment we should all own in a long-term diversified portfolio, what would it be? I, I really believe that 
investing is a great way for you to continuously learn and educate yourself. And it could actually make a very positive impact on your life uh, when you um, pick the companies that can really deliver something just, you know, world changing. So my personal favorites are still in actually in the areas of biotech, because I feel like it is a way for um, investors to really learn about really the the latest advances because a lot has changed in the area of oncology since 2014. And there's a lot of hope and possibilities that cancer may actually one day be a chronic disease instead of a terminal disease. And the more that investors can educate themselves about the mechanisms and the companies are really leading this effort, um, not only can investors benefit over the long run um, as creating a base of healthcare knowledge for themselves later down the line, but also be more be rewarded quite handsomely um, when you invest in really the innovators in this space. So my personal favorite is in biotech. If to translate that into a one investment, you would say buy some biotech companies in among the Chinese small cap stock universe or? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so for um, an investment that is more accessible to the U.S. investors, uh, I will actually look into a Chinese biotech company that's called Baijing. So it's listed in the state, so it's very accessible for the U.S. investor. So this company used to be a Chinese small cap, but it's actually grown quite substantially in a very short period of time. It's now a $7 billion company. It is one of the most innovative biotech companies not just in the China context, but also in the global context. And um, its drugs, again, have been recognized by global biotech giants. So uh, Beijing is one of the world's most innovative uh, biotech company. It's not just one of the best in China. Its drugs are so um, powerful that they've actually gotten the attention of another U.S. biotech giant. So Saojing is actually an investor in the company. In fact, they have a agreement where Beijing will help Saojing sell its portfolio into China, and Saojing will help Beijing sell its portfolio to the rest of the world. And that partnership has gone very well, and we're really excited to see Um, even in the next decade ahead, the pipelines come to fruition. So Tiffany Chow, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack. We really appreciate your being here and giving us the very compelling case about Chinese small company stocks, about which most of us have known very little until now. So thank you for educating us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Tiffany Shao, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack. And I want to thank our audience for joining us as well. For more information on the Matthews China Small Companies Fund, plus investing in China and related topics, please visit our website, WealthTrack.com. In the meantime, make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one. 